Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Another week, another episode of GoToMarket Heroes. Hello, I'm Paul, your show host at large, back with the extraordinary Andy. You all might have realized that it has become now our custom that I'm asking every episode a question to Andy before we proceed to our guest of the day. It's a quest for me to learn more about the one and only Andy. (laughs) So tell me, what is the one thing, or maybe two things, you do better than most. What are your superpowers? And don't tell me it's the 12,000 steps you just did before we started recording this because that would be cheating. <laughs> <laughs> two superpowers. Oh, Paul, you got me again. All right, here's my two superpowers. One is professionally, I've reached a point in my career where I think I've actually got reasonably good at managing people. Do you believe that? I do. I actually feel comfortable now. Okay. So this is my, this is the first thing, building teams, getting good mixes of people and managing them. I actually kind of have reached my comfort zone. So that's number one. The other one that I'm really, really good at is I've just bought myself a old vintage Z80 based computer. I can actually now, this is no word of a lie. I can program Z80 assembler in hexadecimal without looking at the mnemonics okay so that's my geek superpower i'm looking at your face you're looking at me going i don't know i actually know i was thinking more like i should call marvel to do a movie about you about you doing this because you know all these movies about all the hackers and i didn't call you old i'm talking the type of computing is always very kind of boring because you're basically watching a guy in front of the computer but i'm sure that with you they could actually crack the code no pun intended and make a a great movie on exact what did you say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I always look at the, you know, the start sequence of the matrix yes. where all those numbers go down the screen. I'm sure there's something in there. I've even ran that in slow-mo thinking, I wonder what that says. I wonder what it's based on. I wonder what system it is. You know, there's got to be a program in there. If we download it, maybe we could recreate Skynet for the next episode of the podcast. What there do you, think? you go. It's a lie. Yeah. I'll be back. Anyway, so let's go <laughs> to our hero of the day all the way from California. So Andy, who is our hero of the day? Well, today I am thrilled that we have on John, John Kreiser. John, I have had the pleasure of working with. In fact, I don't know if you'll thank me for this or not. We'll find out in a second. I I managed to drag him all the way to the UK. When we worked together, he brought his family over. I think he had a good time. (laughs) I think so. Uh, He's got a great history. So just running through, I'm cherry picking here, okay? He's done a good amount of time in what I would call kind of data-centric, maybe DevOps world of business objects, Logic, Cloudera, Hortonworks, Cloudera. There's There's a loop there, I think. Docker, and he's now the CMO at Couchbase. So I'm thrilled to welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here with you today. Thank you for that intro. I did, for the record, have a great time in England. I just want to make sure I clear that up right here at the beginning of the podcast. Just let's make sure. <laughs> it was fantastic. And my family had a good time. So uh, so there's no there's no you know hard feelings or hidden, uh, hidden agenda. <laughs> I remember, I actually remember being at a barbecue when we did a company barbecue. And I remember your family quizzing me about super- supermarkets because it's always a weird thing when you go live in a different country that supermarkets are different you're like where do you buy this thing and people sometimes look at you and go oh it's that or they look at you and go we don't have that in this country and you're like 
can I live here anymore? That's right. We, we may do, but you're right. We did need to get a little bit of a local cultural uh, knowledge from you. So thank you for that. No, no worries. It was great. It was great. Great to have you here. So, John, I always like to kind of explore people's career, the kind of accident in design. And, you know, you've got, it looks like a lot of design in there, but you, you tell me if I'm wrong, you know, what shaped your career and the moves that you made? And how did you kind of strike that path that you've been on? Thanks. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we can talk about. I started my career, you know, I'm a CMO now, but I started my career in software engineering. So I was writing code and, and my degree is in, in code and then moved into product management. I always enjoyed you know, the part of, I enjoyed creating code, but I also enjoyed talking about the benefits that you could bring with that either to a person or to a company. So that was something I really enjoyed. So it sort of moved me along the path from engineering into product management and then into product marketing. And it was, you know, it was something that just was a natural for me, a natural kind of curiosity, but also desire to help people understand why they should use it and why it would benefit them. And that kind of gift of maybe gab, I guess. And that kind of led me into a marketing career. And that was really the start for me of a good long journey that we can explore. And it's a great career overall for anybody exploring it and wanting to get into it. I mean, it's allowed me to live all over the world, you know, in England there with you, but in previous gigs at, in France and, and in Australia. So it's a really, really great path. So, so started off in product marketing, coming back to it, and really moved up through some great companies. And I'd say I cut my teeth at business objects in, in terms of product marketing like that. That company had a phenomenal product marketing discipline, I'll say, and department. And that really helped me understand all of the core blocking and tackling things that you need to know to be a great product marketer, but marketer in general. Like it was just a company that I think, you know, was leading in terms of that. And I still have many friends who are also similarly positioned as me now who were product marketing then have risen to careers as leaders in marketing. So, you know, so I think that's sort of the path. Now, the interesting piece about it is just the curiosity above and beyond product marketing, you know, understanding it's at the core of what drives a company forward, their sales, their messaging, you know, their external communications, but it also helps with the demand generation. You know, it helps with the key parts of making sure the functions and engines of the of the company work. If you have functioning product marketing, it's it's really at the center of a functioning marketing department in my mind. It's something that you have to have. So that was where, where I cut my teeth and have continued to grow from there. And I'd say the thing that's helped me in my career is that same kind of curiosity that got me into marketing also got me into the other disciplines of marketing. Like what does demand do? What do events do? Those pieces. And we could talk about it more, but that's, it was that path and that curiosity really for me. Just to pick up on product marketing, because one of the things I've noticed about Europe is I think product marketing is an underserved discipline within Europe. It's changing slowly, but it's one area. I think product management and product marketing kind of just get commingled together. Kind of how would you describe in a couple of sentences what product marketing is just for people to kind of get straight in their head? Because you've come from the technical side of the house, moved more towards marketing. So you've got a good bridge between the two. Yeah, I think the essence of product marketing is describing and the ability to create messages and telling the story about a product that best enumerates the benefits of that product, right? And product marketing is a very broad discipline, to be honest. Like there's there's messaging and positioning and competitive pricing and packaging. Like there's so many different pieces to product marketing. So a good product marketer 
has their head around all of those pieces of it. Like it's the key core thing for a company when a company is just starting out to hire, to your point. And so you get a good product marketer who can understand what the product can and should do for the target audience, whether they're developers or financial advisors or, you know, an end user who's who's using it to book a trip, you know, whatever it happens to be, a product marketer helps tell that story about why it's important and then can also tell you how it's different than other things that are out there and why it's better than those things, right? A very good product marketer can do that. Now, continuing on that thread, they can help you package it in the way that makes the best sense for somebody to consume it. Like there's all of those pieces of product marketing, which make it a very rich discipline. And I would tend to agree with you. It's a little bit underserved and and under understood, I think now in my experience, you know, given that I started that part of the discipline, it still seems like one that is uh, challenged and underappreciated. Do you think, just one more thought on this, do you think product marketing is different if you are doing a developer first kind of bottoms up community type building cell? Do you think that changes how you think about product marketing? It's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think what changes is some of the go to market, but your core ability to say, if you're speaking to a developer and you're saying, okay, this is how it's going to help you build applications more quickly. Or if you're in DevOps and this is how you are going to be able to both bring a product to production and manage that product in production the benefits of the software that's helping them do that are the same. Like the ability to tell that story and frame it is still the same. So I believe that that core fundamental to use, I guess maybe it's a rugby term too, blocking and tackling or, or whatever is something that is fundamental to good product marketing. And you have to have those skills and it, it can be, you know, selling refrigerators to, you know, to Eskimos, if you will, like you have to be able to do that. Yeah. And just fast forwarding then you, you, I mean, business objects, Mark logic, all of these are very data centric companies. How did you first kind of come across Hadoop? Because you seem to have caught that very, very early in your career. Was that by accident or did you actually all of a sudden have this epiphany and think this is where it's at? It's a very interesting story, actually. So a lot of time in the data space, you're right. I've done marketing, everything I like to say from the storage layer all the way up to the analytics layer, which is, you know, business objects, reporting, query and analysis and everything in between. But most of it's been in that kind of fat infrastructure middle. And that's where I was at the Marklogic period of the career. And in product marketing there, one of the jobs, as I said, was competitive analysis. And at the time that I was at Marklogic, there was this buzz about this new technology called Hadoop. You know, and, and so me being the product marketing guy, I was assigned to the job of, hey, go check this out and figure out, is it important? Is it a threat? How do we position against it? Like, what do we, what do we need to know? So I was investigating it from the very, very early days, learned about it, learned about the benefits. And then the opportunity came along actually for me to join Cloudera, so, which was, you know, the first commercial Hadoop vendor and, and joining that company very early on. So I was made aware of it. And then when the opportunity came along, then, you know, it was a, it was a natural for me. We met obviously at Hortonworks when you, when you were there, but the growth story there was phenomenal. I mean, it was like a whirlwind. And I recall, I tell people this, that, you know, the first time we did our events, it would be all jeans and t-shirts, but pretty soon you saw people with collared shirts turning up to these events as well. You seem to make that jump from kind of to develop it to business relatively quickly, I thought, for, for a new generation of technology. Yeah. Hadoop, as many open source technologies, had a very much um, a skunkworks-like adoption model at first, right? Where you know some developer would download it and start to play around with it, quickly realize that they had an immensely powerful platform in their hands, and start to do some pretty amazing things, you know, that they weren't able to do before with the traditional technology that they had. And so you're right, like that's you know that was the adoption model was this sort of bottoms up, but pretty soon real 
enterprise applications were being built on top of it. And that, of course, attracts more of a business user, to your point. And so we quickly had to pivot and start to address both of those audiences from the marketing standpoint. It was no longer just focus on driving how many downloads you could get and, and developer benefits. But hey, guess what? You're driving business value here. Companies are building apps that are changing and driving their overall organization. So yeah, business leaders got involved reasonably early with that technology. And I, I almost feel like, by the way, the Hortonworks distribution, which had, what, 20, 21, 22 components in it. It's almost like each one of those components has now gone off to build another billion dollar company. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, it's spawned all these other companies that have kind of yeah. come out of yeah, it. No, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, you're right. The platform was complex. I mean, that was the job that Hortonworks and others did was, you know, package all of those open source technologies into a coherent, usable platform. You know, some large organizations tried to to download and assemble that stuff together, but it's the difference between buying the already prepared meal and trying to go ahead and make it yourself when you have to be a chef to do it. It's a pretty important difference. So that was the big value that that those companies were adding. And you're right. You know, the, some of those components are still spun off and are still out there, Hive and, and many of the others that were there were at the core of that overall platform. So it's a it's a great and interesting story. I mean, you know, spurned multiple companies and that have grown and some that are still out there. And you said, you know, as you said, there's interesting arcs that they've gone through that those have been through. Hey, so back to marketing. So you started in product marketing and then you started to take on the broad church of marketing with all those streams that go with it. And I I almost feel like marketing is the one that's exploded the most out of all the disciplines, by the way, in terms of just the nuances. Who trained you? Who invested in you? Was it a person? Was it a company? Was it self-taught? Was it people around you? I'm just curious. For me, it was a lot of my own personal curiosity, to be honest. Like I didn't, it was OJT on on the job training, you know, (laughs) always at business objects. It was a very broad marketing department with a lot of departments. So I explored or at least had interest in the others. I didn't necessarily practice any of them, but I paid a lot of attention to them, what the demand team was doing and the PR and AR team was doing and, and the events team and like all the different disciplines. So sort of just out of curiosity, spent a lot of time with them. And then I moved to, you know, at Mark Logic, I actually took over and did industry marketing, which gave me a little bit of a discipline and had a component of demand generation. So I was responsible for creating demand within certain industries. And that really gave me the kind of ownership of that piece and allowed me to start to build on that. And then, you know, I moved up to to a leadership overall and had to just build on some of the weaknesses that I had. So I've always had certain areas where I need to continue to develop like areas of um, branding and things where I don't have the core discipline, but I'm still curious and learning and, and building on those pieces. But the other pieces, you know, I've, I've just done it by learning, by managing, by being in it. And I think it's part of it is just from a career standpoint, not being afraid to take a chance. I am comfortable moving into a discipline that I'm not completely deep in and learning while I'm doing. And so that has helped me jump and explore and grow the career. So you lived in Paris, I think, with business objects. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? How was that? I mean, it was great. I moved to Paris. The engineering team was based in Paris. That's why product marketing was there. So the product marketing team was there. And so we worked very closely with our PM counterparts, but I also got to travel extensively for the company, you know, the product marketing operated globally, of course. So it was back to the US, it was all through Europe, and then some through Asia. And so it was a really phenomenal personal experience, you know, culturally working in that country, but also with the team. Business Objects was a dual headquartered company, San Jose, California, and Paris. So 
it was a mix of native English speakers like myself and then Europeans. And it was just a melting pot. It was really, really a fun experience. And I recall when we did events in Asia and Japan, you got your Australian experience already. So that was good when we got there. I remember the first time we did an event together in Tokyo, the developers there were treated like rock stars. Do you recall that? I do. One guy that had someone that carried his laptop in for him, yeah. kind of like a whole entourage. I do. I remember seeing them come by going, what? is happening there do you i think you were having it or somebody locally was having to explain to us like that is you know a local star okay that's fantastic all right yeah yeah those were great again another kind of cultural experience and extension of the overall thing and just what made you know working in a global company like hortonworks so much fun and yeah i mean we had so many great trips andy (laughs) so much fun (laughs) yeah i just couldn't work out why they were being treated that way and they were like these people are like rock stars to us you know and i thought wow i wonder if we could make that work for all the developers you know and you got some of the events now you're like yeah i think he does work like that now you know some of the developers are rock stars hey so who when was the first time you got the whole thing like you know hey you got the whole of marketing what was that moment yeah i mean that was the move to cloud era i mean it was those small company so i mean typically in your career right you can move parallel to a larger company or you can move up to a smaller company it's typically the path and so for me it was moving from you know from a company that was larger to a smaller company at the time it obviously out, way outgrew that but smaller company at the time which you know thankfully that company um, offered me the opportunity to own all of that I was the first marketing hire so I was building the team both contractors and full-time people to help do demand and the website and all the product marketing all the things you have to do to build a department but that was really I'll call it my my break and I you know I thank that team for trusting me and giving me that opportunity because it's really you know another career arc and bending moment for me you know that was much appreciated and, and well understood and as I said much appreciated and I don't need to recall this but you once said something to to me that stuck with me which is you said well Andy it's the rule of ones and threes and I said what is that well every company when they reach 1 million 3 million 10 million 30 million Things change. And I can't remember the words you use, but it's something along the lines of, hey, what went before can't take you to that next revenue barrier. Do you still swear by that? Do you still live by that? I do. I very much subscribe <laughs> to that. You know, it's it's not a scientific rule of thumb, but in practice, in observation, it tends to be true. And probably you've seen it too, because you've grown some companies. You know, what worked for you at 10 million doesn't work for you at 30. And similarly, 30 to 100, what got you there won't get you from 100 to 300. Like it's people it's processes, it's growth strategies, right? There's just different things that are required for each of those levels, disciplines that you can have, right? You can be pretty undisciplined in a, you know, as a, as a $10 million company, but as a hundred million, you better have a lot of things buttoned up in terms of sales process and messaging and positioning and all that stuff. Like you, you have to know what my repeatable sales process is if I'm going to scale a team at that size, as opposed to, you know, something at 10 million where you're a little bit still hunting for what the repeatable business model is. And the tech that got you there so i'm thinking like marketing now there is every part of marketing that you just talked about has like a piece of software typically that sits behind it you know and by the way one of my big frustrations here is that typically marketing tech and sales tech never typically natively talk to each other that well either which also frustrates me (laughs) it's true there are different stacks like there's 
you know, it's hard to think. I mean, there are some where there's a little bit of crossover, but yeah, the the Salesforce stack and the marketing stack, they meet <laughs> and they integrate, but they aren't the one. They aren't one thing, as it turns out. But you're right to your statement. I mean, there's been so much innovation in the MarTech stack, I will say, that I've seen in the last couple of years, even just since we worked together, which wasn't that long ago. You know, the tools, uh, I recently have been learning about some of the tools that we've, we're using here. And for example, things like account-based marketing, right? Now, account-based marketing, some might just call it good marketing, right? I get it, right? It's it's tuned messaging aligned deeply with the sales team and all that. But but there really is more to it. When we were doing it, it was really mostly manual process, mostly a sales team working with the marketing team to build programs that would be customized all the way down to an individual company to try to sell to that company. And now there are extensive programs and software that you can use to facilitate all of that so that the sales team can continuously be delivering customized messages directly out to individuals within organizations, you know, at a very, very precise level. And it's really great to see, actually. It's sort of fun time to be in marketing right now. And of course, there's a lot of things that have changed that, you know, that we'll continue to explore here, but but there's a lot that have changed, but the software is really driving some some fun things. That's interesting. I was going to ask you, so the people listening to this will probably be at kind of A, maybe B, possibly on the B to C journey. So they'll be kind of on that continuum somewhere. Any kind of thoughts as to setting up marketing, where to focus first, what MarTech stack, what parts of that stack to get going first of all? And I'm thinking particularly people who will be listening will probably be in a related space to where you are. Yeah. So kind of, you know, if you were to do this again. Yeah. I mean, hopefully in just in that little journey that you described, the A to B, B to C, there's different stacks and different maturity levels that you're going to want to get to. So, so if you're at A, you're really should be in the process of putting all the fundamental MarTech stack. So, you know, marketing automation systems, making sure that that's properly connected to your website, making sure that you've got some basic digital demand systems in place. Like you want to lay that foundation and make sure that that's in place if you're at the A stage. Now, as you grow, and this, you know, there's a little bit of it depends on which market you're in and what you're doing. As you said, if you're in the data space or whatever, then it's normally going to be the same, but it's maturing. You don't need to get, for example, the ABM platform I mentioned. You probably aren't to that stage because you haven't really got that level of maturity in the sales team and in the processes and all those kinds of things. So really it's expanding and laying that foundation and continuing to build onto it with things like what is your webinar you know, or web events platform that you're going to have. And of course, COVID has changed things forever in terms of a digital first strategy, making sure that you're connected through to the events that you might do and that you have processes in place as you get to be and further so that you might start to have a field marketing team and that field marketing team would be distributed. And all right, do you have a process for collecting the leads back for those, cleaning the leads, the lead routing systems that go into place, like all of these sort of layers, which of course bleed into and touch the sales team, you know, you need to start to build in and have that, those additional layers of software, but also processes, right? And just some well-defined processes on cleaning and collection and routing. And, you know, you, you start to build on that so that you can start to get to the scaling size. And again, you know, this too, you know, even the rounds that companies are taking now, A's are more like B's and B's are more like C's, you know, so there's sort of been this acceleration even in the market from how quickly companies mature, that maturing curve is faster from what I see which is exciting and scary all at the same time. Like there's a benefit to being able to grow slowly into some of the processes and, and getting a lot of money 
puts a lot of pressure on you to grow quickly. Yeah, it does. It does. There's probably someone listening to this right now, jogging, nodding at the same time. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, it does. It I've does. got that pressure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling it right now. Also, it's given rise to, I think because some companies now have emerged, like the Atlassians, et cetera, of size and growth marketing is, is not kind of sales-led. It's more marketing-led. Yeah. And it's kind of new sales models have kind of sprung up, particularly when you're talking to that DevOps yeah. customer. How do you make those decisions, do you think, in terms of that go-to-market? You know, should you just do a pure bottoms-up? Should you have a sales force? Like you mentioned ABM. You know, ABM's a big, costly thing to do. You know, how do you make those trade-offs, do you think? Yeah, it's great. I mean, you have to match to your model. So like product-led or, you know, one way to think about it is a buy-from or sell-to model, right? So sell-to is like the traditional enterprise sales team is, you know, contacting potential clients and telling about the benefits. And it can be in person or over the phone, right? But you're still selling to you're reaching out to somebody as opposed to, as you said, like the bottoms up buy from, they're going to your website, they're trialing, they're downloading, or if it's SaaS or hosted, right, which is the latest, the, the emerging probably future model, which is how does somebody go and trial something on your website, you know, trial the product and what's the journey. And I think the thing you really have to think about in that buy from model and the, and the real change now is and Atlassian and a lot of companies like that have best practices here is what is the journey I want to walk my potential user through? What do they get for that free experience? You know, what do they get for the very lowest levels of paid and how do I increase that kind of adoption? And that's both along the vector of a single product, but also then branching out from that product. Companies like Atlassian have product suites, of course, and they can address different departments and different needs within an organization, but you're always going to sort of start in one direction and grow out. So in terms of deciding which marketing methods you use, it's, it goes to what's the model that the company has in terms of go-to-market. Most companies now have some form of buy from. They are experiencing a user digitally and they're going to go and try that without anybody holding their hand or there might be some light touch early on. And you really have to think about what's that journey that you want somebody to go through. And it has to be very well instrumented, like super, super important is so that you know what is somebody consuming? You know, what buttons are they pushing? What pieces of the product are they consuming? If it's a product that has a storage component, how much how much are they storing with this? How much are they interacting with it? You have to understand that and instrument it in order to drive the behavior that you want, you know, and that you expect because, you know, that's what helps you have a fair exchange of value and get into that kind of relationship where they become a paying customer because they understand the value that you're offering. That's the key there. And just related to that, my eyes have been open because a lot of times when I see companies and they talk about their total addressable market, they usually underestimate it because they don't think of either different use cases or the fact that something comes along like machine-generated data, where you just get another explosion of data or log data or whatever it may be. And then you also get people who have different special use cases like time sequence data or they want to run ML real-time on things or different things that come along that just mean that the market just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it generates more big players than you ever would have thought in terms of the data market, I mean, you've lived it all the way from, you know, business objects, I think we're selling, if I recall correctly, you know, very enterprise type deals, you know, larger deals. And now we're all the way through to this bottoms up selling that we just talked about. What trajectory do you think the market's on in terms of data? Because it just seems to be growing exponentially still. Yeah, I don't think there's an endpoint here in terms of data and the growth of data that I see, right? Because if you look at where does it come from, it comes from people and devices, and then you have to have the networks that'll carry it, right? 5G is rolling out everywhere. So it's only capable of 
carrying and pushing more data. So that's going to encourage more endpoint devices, more usage, right? Uh, devices are getting smarter. We see it all the time. Yeah. I mean, how, how penetrated is the smart home market, right? It's, <laughs> there's a huge growth and opportunity just as an example. And so there's no end in sight in terms of the data creation that's happening. And it's driving changes in, in the technology. You know, if you think about it, the very early kind of technologies for capturing and working with data were transactional based, right? It was John swiped his credit card, you know, at this store, bought this item on this date and whatever, like very transactional based. And now it's more interaction based, right? What did I do when I visited the website? And, you know, oh, did I also use my smartphone app to do some banking? We have all experienced it now. If I log into my banking app, it says, you know, I can see that you were recently <laughs> logged into your mobile device too. It knows. Or, you know, if I call in, it says, I see that you are logged in. Like it knows all of these things. So those smart applications and smart interaction capturing, it personalizes the experience. It makes it better. There's no end in that trend. Every industry will benefit from that. Financial services and travel, I mean, they, they all will benefit from those interaction-based applications. And it's based on data. I mean, to your point, like it's just not going to stop. But for the better, I think for the most part, I mean, you know, one could go into that area of collection of privacy and all those things. So those issues notwithstanding, there are benefits that we as a consumer can have that, you know, we like for the most part. I think it's, it's not always great, but we like for the most part. I don't know what you think about it, but that's what I think. I read a lot of things where people try to predict where the market's going. And, you know, there was the kind of software is eating the world, data is eating the world, AI is eating the world. And I almost feel like if someone said, what's the history of computing? It's abstraction. You know, you started with metal, then a BIOS, then an operating system, then Windows, then a voice, then voice activated, then AI. Before we know it would be holograms yeah. and it'd be like, there's no machine anymore. Yeah, we just have completely abstracted away. And it just feels like we're on that journey. But the supporting infrastructures, you talked about those layers that you've operated in. The amount of data to get there is just exponentially going up. So I feel like this data revolution has just got a long, long way to go. The other thing I was going to ask you as well is, you know, when we were at Hordeworks, we were very much an on-prem play before we started moving to the cloud. Do you feel like cloud and data are kind of fully together now? Because just because of the volumes and the storage and the compute and just having to kind of use vast resources to manipulate that amount of data, do you think that's kind of transitions happened so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the the maturity of the cloud-based technologies, whether you're using, you know, one of the big cloud vendors or hosting it in you know, a remote data center or whatever it is, the technologies are there for capturing the large amounts of data and analyzing the data. And you mentioned, you know, AI and ML, you need tools like that to comb through the, the massive amounts of data and make some sense of it. And there's still maturity to go and to happen, but I think we're down that path and we could go and search out and find examples of cloud-based applications that are capturing massive amounts of data and processing massive amounts of data. So I think those are there and you know that's for big enterprises and then for the small ones that are growing into it, I think the path is pretty well trodden. That's the good news. I think they should focus on you know differentiating and adding value on the their specific area of expertise, not on like building out those infrastructures. You use what's out there, I think, is, is what I'd say, and focus on your unique value. Just kind of looping back as well as on the marketing side, just to kind of finish that thread off. And I was thinking, you've been part of leadership teams now. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed, by the way, is that marketing tends to come after sales. <laughs> so companies are always rushing to build and they like go out, hire their senior salesperson. Sometimes they get that wrong because they go hire someone very expensive from a very big company that's never been at the stage of growth that they're at. You know, So it's very alien to them. 
and you've been through this growth before. Like, how do you make that kind of sales marketing go to market live together in that earlier stage? Yeah, I mean, I think it's much like I'll say you and I work together, Andy. It's you have to be partnered very closely to the model, but you also have to be aligned on what the strategy is, what the what the go to market model is, and set expectations appropriately too, right? I mean, small marketing teams can only do so much, so you have to say, okay, here's the priorities, and you have to agree that with your sales counterpart. I mean, that's something that's key. If you don't have that good relationship, then the company can't function. You know, it's the engine and the transmission aren't connected and that's a problem. And so you have to establish good relationship and alignment and targets and goals and work very closely together, right? It's it's working in the trenches, you know it, right? It's working in the trenches of, of agreeing to all those things and making sure that your teams are aligned as well, you know, in, in so much as you have, you know, some size of teams working for you. Yeah. Hey, and just just another thought as well, the pandemic, you know, do you think that's changed things for good in terms of how companies are built, how they operate, how customers operate, that that whole interaction? Yeah, I think so. I would say there there are positives that we will come out of this. I would say if companies weren't digital first already, it's accelerated their trend. And I don't mean that just from a kind of digital transformation. I mean it from, you know, there were companies that were principally in-person based models and sales. Enterprise sales is one where it's mostly a relationship person to person, like kind of thing. And you know, that's, it's changed. It's the same for marketing, you know, marketing events, field marketing teams, which were, you know, built on hosting 40 and 50 person events regionally that would get customers and prospects together had to find a new way to do it. And I think what I've seen across companies and my peers is that people made the transition fairly quickly, did a pretty good job of figuring out what they needed to do and what would still work. But I will say that everybody is saying, my team included, we'll have events again. We will do in-person events. But I, I can imagine blends of events where there is a digital component. So, hey, if you want to stay home, that's okay. We're going to give you a virtual experience of some kind where it's as though you were there. So that is a long-term change and transition that I think is probably for the better because you can reach more audiences. I'll reference one from my previous job at Docker. We had our event, DockerCon, had people from, I think, 190 different countries or like 180 countries, like a huge participation. You'd never have gotten that at a physical event, but it was online. And so people were coming from all over the place. You know, there was an attendee from the Vatican. It was crazy. It was great. So fine. We're super excited to make it inclusive. It just makes things more inclusive. You know, people can't travel because of visas and stuff like that. Digitally, it doesn't matter. They can attend. It is actually something that exposed more people and had a broader reach. And that's all for the good in my mind. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm also thinking about what you just said there. There's so many taglines you could take from that. You know, does the Pope use Docker question mark? I mean, that's... <laughs> Just. <laughs> with docker desktop hacking away i mean you know you started you said to hack it so maybe Z80 so <laughs> yeah z80 i did start there so hey we're coming up on time and i always like to hear what people are excited about that's going on out there things that you know they look at they see that are either emerging changing developing it could be people companies trends within marketing within data within companies you know Anything exciting for you out there at the moment? Yeah, I think that just pulling on the thread that we were just talking about, I think changes in the industry that have happened because of the pandemic are long-term good. And I think that's super positive. So, you know, that's something that I don't think will go back the other way. And I think we'll see more inclusive activities and that opens up more opportunity. And there's there's innovation that's come 
from it as well. I mean, just the platforms that are available for for engaging with people, the innovation is really strong there. And I think that's something that uh, to me is exciting as a marketer because you know it's all about engaging people in authentic ways and making sure that we're telling, still goes all the way back to what I was interested in the beginning, like telling that story and helping people understand how they can benefit from something. And there's even more ways to do it now than, than there were. And that's something that's exciting for me. I did have one last question. And actually I'm asking on behalf of my daughter. Okay. So she's now gone off to study marketing, business with marketing at university. Yeah, fantastic. And she said to me, she said, Dad, where should I start in marketing? So if you were to do this all again, where would you start? Product marketing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, no, I think there's lots of different entries. Actually, in, in all seriousness, one of the disciplines that is so important for marketing now is in the kind of data and operations and analysis side. Like now for me, even at small, when I'm managing a small marketing team, there's a data and analytics marketing operations person. So if that's of interest to your daughter or to anybody really who's listening, the data and operations, a marketing department now can't run without that function and a fully built out and mature function that helps understand because there's so much, you know, it goes back to the system, so many systems, so much happening, so much integration that's needed to be done with the sales team, that you have to have a marketing operations department that is really tying everything together and analyzing all that data. So a very interesting way into marketing to me would also be through that, that marketing ops. Got it. That's great. Well, listen, I appreciate that. If she listens to this, She'll hopefully get a clue there as to what to go look at. <laughs> <laughs> but John, as ever, love chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, Andy, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. And I will say that as someone, me, who used to live in Tokyo and ran events there for tech startups, your description about developers earlier in the show was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. My own superpower, guys, was that as someone with 6'5", 196, I was just... Big in Japan. Thank you, John. Thank you, Andy. (laughs) 